Hi, my name is Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. Glad you're here. I've got the privilege of bringing God's message to us this morning, at least my best understanding of his message to us. If you've been with us during the Problem of God series uh, and you've decided to continue hanging out with us, a special welcome to you. You can still pick up a copy of Mark's book if you would like, The Problem of God, the questions and, uh, that skeptics have. Our desire every week is for you to have an experience of meeting God and feeling his love during our worship. We also want you to connect with us, and community groups are a great way to do that. And lastly, though, we want you to hear a message from God from his word. And again, that's my privilege of bringing to you this morning. We're going back, if you can remember, we're going back to our study of Matthew. The last time we were in the book of Matthew was September 3rd. And uh, we're going to pick it up in Matthew 21. We're nearing the end of the book of Matthew. And in the, the book of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is actually nearing the end of his existence on earth. In fact, this is his last week on earth. And the time for small talk is gone. Jesus didn't really have small talk anyway. But Jesus' message and the intensity of his schedule were increasing daily. But so was his grace to those who were responding to his message. And when you've only got a week left, your, your messages become very poignant. And it was very important for him to get across. And he's speaking to, in this story, in this parable, he's actually speaking to his opposition. The spiritual leaders who were rejecting him. And he was speaking in parables, and parables are short, poignant stories meant to communicate a truth that's either hard to understand or hard to accept. And because he's speaking to the spiritual leadership who were educated, it wasn't that they didn't understand, it was they were having a hard time accepting and embracing the message that Jesus had for them. We're going to pick it up in Matthew 21, verse 33. He starts off with, hear another parable. And it actually comes right on the heels of the parable of the two sons that we covered back on September 3rd, in which Jesus was pointing out, if you don't remember it, Jesus was pointing out that what God's really looking for is not people who proclaim Jesus as Lord, but actually live like it. In other words, even if you at first, when God speaks to you, even if at first you kind of push back and resist it because you understand what that will mean in your life, he would rather have you push back and resist and wrestle with it a bit and then end up doing what he asks you to do than be one of those persons who say, yes, Jesus, you can have it all, but then actually the way we live doesn't show much evidence that Jesus is Lord in our lives at all. At all. In fact, Jesus wants there to be evidence in our lives more than just coming to church on Sunday that he's Lord in our lives. That's where this parable comes. And he says, hear another parable. And uh, this parable is actually a solemn warning. It's a warning to, to people who re repeatedly reject and resist the word of God, the voice of God in their lives. And it's also a very solemn warning of what happens to those who don't produce the type of fruit in their lives that God's expecting. So I want to read the parable with you, and then I want to come back and make a few comments. Lord Jesus, we ask you to, to perform that miracle again, to take your, your written word and making living and active in our lives. Holy Spirit, we ask you to help us to hear that nugget of truth that you're speaking right into our lives, right where we live, so that we can honor you, glorify you, and so that you can fill us with your love, your presence, and your blessing in Jesus' name. Here another parable, Jesus says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, and he dug a wine press in it and built a tower and he leased it to tenants and then he went to another country. I want to circle if you've got a written Bible, leased it to tenants. 
When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, the fruit that he expected. In this case, it would have been grapes and ultimately wine. But the tenants took his servants, they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another. Again, the landowner sent more servants, more than the first, and the tenants did the same to them. Finally, the landowner sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to himself, this is the heir, let's take him and kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him outside and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When, the owner, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what is he going to do to those tenants? And they, the religious, the spiritual leaders, said to Jesus, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Just so you understand, in those days, they built primarily out of stones, and they would look for the cornerstone that would set the direction of the house. And, and the builders would reject certain ones, and what, what Jesus is saying there, and he's, he's quoting Psalm 118, just like King David, if you know the story, King David was not the type of person that, that, that normal people would pick to be a leader, but God saw his heart and picked him to be leader. God exalted him. And Jesus is saying that he actually is the cornerstone. That even though you're rejecting me, God's exalting me, and it's going to be based upon my words, my teachings, my expectations, that all things are going to be judged and measured. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, here's the warning. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone, what I'm teaching, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisee, the religious leaders, heard his parables, both parables of the two sons, the ones that didn't obey at first and then went out and obeyed versus the ones that didn't obey. And this parable, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. How did they know? How did, how did the penny finally drop? How did they know God, that Jesus was speaking to them? They felt it in their souls. They felt it in their souls. There was that stirring in their conscience. There was that stirring in their bowels. And it's the same thing that happens to us when we hear God's word taught or in the middle of a song and all of a sudden there's that 90 seconds where it feels like God is speaking directly into your hearts. It's called conviction. They heard and they realized that God was speaking directly to them. They just didn't like what God was saying. And so they did what we often do. When God speaks something into our lives that's a little bit uncomfortable, we shut him down or we'll attack the messenger. And in this case, that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They didn't like what God was saying, so they decided to find a way to arrest Jesus and silence the message and silence the messenger. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation. If you know Jesus Christ personally, even with all your flaws, if you've invited him to forgive, asked him to forgive your sins, apply his forgiveness to your account and make him leader of your life, there's absolutely no condemnation, but there is conviction. In fact, there should be conviction. Just explain the difference. They're very different. 
A lot of us confuse them. Condemnation is the emotion a condemned criminal feels as he's paraded on his way to his execution, paraded in front of the crowds. He's exposed, humiliated, he's shamed, and he's got all of his offenses and crimes listed on his shirt or hung above his head. He feels exposed, shame, and that someone has actually deemed him unworthy even of life. That's condemnation. You hang your head in shame. Conviction, on the other hand, and if you feel condemnation this morning or any time God's words preached, whenever you feel condemned, if you feel shame, I can promise you that is not the voice of God. It's the voice of Satan. It's the voice saying, you are despicable, you're unworthy, you're unforgivable, there's no hope for you, there's no hope for your life, you've crossed the line, you know what you are, you're awful. That's the voice of Satan. The voice of conviction is very different. Ironically, it often addresses the same issues in our lives. It puts pressure on some of the points that God wants to deal with in our lives. But it comes with a washing. It comes with a warmth. It comes with the pleading of God. I know you've made a mistake. I know you're flawed. I know you've blown it. But listen, let's reason together. We can deal with this. You don't have to do it alone. It might be difficult, but we can get through this. I'm here to help you. I've got you covered. Everything you've done, I've already paid for. That's the, that's the voice of conviction. And, and conviction comes because God sees things in our lives that are going astray, and he not only sees them, he sees what will happen if we continue to walk that way, and so he pleads with us. But remember, there's no condemnation, but there are consequences when we continue to live in a way that is outside God's will. Here's the problem. When we repeatedly ignore and suppress God's voice of conviction, we build up resistance to it, just like Tylenol 3. We build up, when we ignore God's voice, when he comes with us and say, Ken, something's out of line in your life, listen to me, let's work on this. When we, we ignore that, we build up resistance to it and we need stronger and stronger warnings before we'll actually stop and listen to God. And if we resist his voice long enough, we'll actually stop hearing God's voice altogether. And we'll fall into a deception will develop blind spots and will fall into a deception that makes us believe that God's actually okay with how we're living when in fact he's not. And not only that, we'll develop blind spots in our own lives and we'll become critical of other people with those same issues going on in their lives. That's the danger when we resist God's voice. And that's exactly where the, where the spiritual leaders of Israel found themselves on that day. They had resisted. They, they didn't, at first, they didn't even get it that the parable was for them. From, for them. That they resisted. They didn't see it. And Jesus' parable was actually a description of the nation of Israel, of their history, from their inception to the, to the day that they're at, very soon to be de defeated and destroyed again, by, but this time by Rome. The parable uh, Jesus was, told, was telling, the landowner was God. And just like the landowner set up the tenants for success, and the, the, ten, the landowner did it right, he gave them a wine press, he built a, a protection around them for, for safety. And God did the same with Israel. He gave them land, he gave them a promise of blessing. He told them that he's gonna give them influence. He gave them an amazing set of laws to live by. We forget the, uh, the enormity and the amazement of the laws. In fact, a lot of our laws in North America are actually based upon the laws of God, the moral law of God. And the idea was, if you wanna know what God's love language is, it's obedience. You know, uh, we've got the love languages, you know, touch and gifts and, and, and words of affirmation. God's love language is obedience, and he gives us a set of laws because as we obey those laws, he can bless. 
And God set up Israel for success. He wanted them to prosper. He wanted them to be the head and not the tail of all nations. He wanted them to enjoy the blessings of God. He wanted them to enjoy all this. But God had a very, very clear expectation of Israel that made total sense to them at the beginning. God, uh, the, the landowner had a very, very clear expectation of the tenants, even though he gives it all to them for free. He expected grapes, and the landowner gets to pick the type of harvest that he wants and the quantity. And God had very clear expectations of Israel. You know what they were? I, I figured it out, and I didn't figure it out. I nailed it down to three things for the sake of simplicity. This is the expectation of Israel. Honor me as God. Make me number one in your life. Don't pollute me. Don't add other gods to it. Keep in mind that everything I've given you is a free gift, but it's mine, and you are simply a tenant. Honor God as God. Secondly, obey my laws. That's the hedge of protection. Obey my rules as best you understand them, even if they don't make sense at first. Obey my laws because then I can bless. When you step outside of the laws of God, God often can't bless. He sometimes even has to withdraw his blessing and our lives begin to fall apart. That's why God said, secondly, obey me. And thirdly, share me with the rest of the world. I'm giving you all this free. In, in fact, God's intent was that Israel would live in such a way and God would bless them in such a way that all the other nations would be attracted to God and say, what other nation is so great as to have their God so close to them and have such a wonderful set of laws? And at the inception of Israel, when they walked into the land back in history, this all made sense to them. Of course we'll honor God as God. Of course we want to obey him. He's got our best in mind. Of course we want to share God with the rest of the world. Why is that so important? Why am I going over Israel? Because we live in North America. We're Canadians. Surely we're not responsible for the expectations God has upon Israel. Of course we're not. But have you see seen where you and I fit in the story? See, this isn't that important until you realize where we fit in the story. It took me a while to figure it out. And as soon as I figured out where you and I fit, the expectations God has upon Israel became incredibly important. Let's see if we can find it. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. You see it? You and I are the replacement tenants. You and I, the church, village church, the church in Canada, the church in North America, the church in the world, we are the new kingdom of God. Jesus was saying to the spiritual leaders, because you've continually rejected what I expected from you, to honor me as God, put me first place in your life and see everything that I've given you, not as yours, but as mine. Secondly, to obey as best you understand. God's not looking for perfection. Of course, he would love perfection. He knows we're gonna blow. That's why he sent his son to pay the price, but he's looking for an intent to as best we understand it, obey God, even when it doesn't make sense, and to share God with the rest of the world. They didn't do that. Israel didn't do that, and Jesus is warning them, and he's actually telling them the kingdom of God's gonna be taken from you, and it's gonna be given to people like Ken and Bonnie and Village Church and other churches that name him to be Lord. You see, God expects us to produce the same fruits that Israel didn't. Honor God as God, keep God number one in our lives. Consider everything we have, our homes, our cars, our wealth, our relationships, our talents, our abilities, even our looks, our appearance, as his and we're tenants. Secondly, to as best we understand, obey God. Do you ever find yourself saying, I know God says this, but? 
God actually wants us to take out the but and put a therefore. I know God says this, but. Don't allow that language. I know God says, it, says this, therefore, I'm going to make these adjustments. And then third, what was the third one again? Oh, yeah, to share God with the rest of the world. What do you suppose God might do if we, like Israel, fail to produce those results? I thought about that this week. And my fear is that he might respond similar as he did with Israel. And then I was thinking about that. I was thinking, how does, how, how did Israel get from the point where they loved God with all their heart, soul, and mind to the point where they, they didn't even hear God's voice anymore and they thought they were self-righteous so much, they had blind spots so much that they didn't even realize that Jesus at first was talking about them. They thought that when they killed Jesus, they actually resisted God, they resisted Jesus. They actually thought they were doing God a favor by shutting down that message. How does someone get from this place where you love God with all your heart to where you can't even hear his voice anymore? How does anyone get there? Because there are some people probably that used to worship with us, maybe in our families. How do you get from loving God to not even hearing him anymore? I don't want to oversimplify this, but I, I looked in the parable again and I found three mistakes that Israel made that we're also vulnerable to making. The first mistake that Israel made and the tenants made in, in the story was they distorted their understanding of God to justify their disobedience. They distorted their understanding of God to justify their disobedience because they're generally good people and that's, that's the first step. We're generally good people. We want to worship God, but we distort our understanding of God to justify our disobedience. How do the tenants do it? See, at first they thought the deal was great. They were thrilled about this. Of course we'll give you your share. But then over time, they thought God's unfair. We're doing all the work. And they distorted the goodness of God who gave them all these things to God being unfair. Do you remember the initial deal you made with God? And, and, and just hear me on this. This is not a work salvation. God offers us eternal life for free. But do you remember your words when you invited Jesus Christ to be Savior and Lord of your life? I do. It was 2 a.m. One, one night or one morning, actually. I was drinking alone in the parking lot. My life was a mess. I was broke. My body was broken. My heart was broken. And I threw a beer bottle against the pole and I said, take it. Just talking to God, take my life. I wasn't giving him the beer, I don't think you need one. I was throwing the beer bottle, I said, take my life. If you think you can do any better, it, it, was, it, was, it wasn't a dare. It, well, I guess it was a dare, but it wasn't irreverent. I blew my life, God, if you can do anything with it, take my life. And some of us did the same. Jesus, I invite you to be leader of my life. Take my life. And a lot of us came to Jesus in a period of brokenness. Things weren't going well, and we needed help. But over time, and, and, and at first, the, 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 the love of God, I remember when I became a Christian, I, I, was, I was 19 years old, two things happened, and I was drunk when I became a Christian, and God still was speaking to me, and I could hear his voice enough. And I remember in the morning, I woke up, and I felt unconditional love for the first time in my life. And I know I was loved as a child, but I felt unconditional love, and I knew my life had a purpose, and that meant so much to me. Of course I was willing to give God everything in my life, but then when God takes me up on the offer and actually starts asking things of me, I look around and I say, that's not fair. You're not asking that of these people. And I distort my understanding of God of being a good God to being unfair because that would justify my disobedience and withholding from him. Be careful if you be, when you begin to think God is unfair and go back to what he's done for us. 
The second mistake that Israel made and the tenants made is that they mistook and they interpreted the patience and the grace of God as indifference. We mistake the patience of God as indifference or even affirmation of how we're living. And, and this is how it happened. I think after the tenants first killed the first batch of, of, of uh, people that were coming to collect, I think they were a little bit nervous. We just killed these guys. And they were probably expecting the landowner to come with an army. They had, he had the law on their side. He could have evicted them, but, God, but the landowner did nothing. Oh. Maybe he wasn't as serious about this fruit thing. Maybe it was a suggestion, not an expectation. Maybe, God, maybe the landowner's actually okay with us holding back. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he's weak. And God's grace, or the landowner's grace in this situation, what, what did he do? He just sent more people. Oh, that's it? Just more warnings? We can handle that. We'll just kill them too. And sometimes God's grace confuses us and Satan distorts it and we take God's grace, God not punishing us when we're going away that's, that's not healthy. We take his grace and we think, I guess we can get away with that. And we mistake God's grace for indifference and sometimes even affirmation of how we're living. Israel had the same problem. They violated all three of God's command. They didn't keep God, they didn't honor God as God. They mixed him with other cultural gods. They kept God as worship, but they, they created their own system of worship, their own ways of worship, and thought God would be okay, and God didn't do anything. He didn't wipe them out. He just sent prophets to them to warn them, and they didn't listen to that. Secondly, they didn't obey God as he commanded. They, they made all kinds of other rules, and they say, I know God says this, but... He didn't really mean that. And then sharing God with the rest of the world, they totally forgot about that. And then actually thought that all the blessings were for him, them only, and of course God wanted them to enjoy it, but he desperately wanted them to share it with the rest of the world. God didn't actually think Israel was any better. He just had to choose someone. And when he chose the nation of Israel, he said, I will make you a blessing to all peoples. I'm gonna bless you, and you're gonna become a blessing. You know the problem of, you know, we just did this problem of God study. If I was going to title this message, I'd call it the problem of grace. The problem of grace is that it invariably gives us the impression we can get away with rejecting God. And we can for a time, but not forever. This isn't a statement from God. This is a statement that is my understanding of it. Grace is unconditional and unlimited in scope, but not in duration. Grace is unconditional and unlimited in scope, but not in duration. In other words, there will be a day when accounts become due. And here's a warning. I fear that some of us might be misinterpreting the grace of God in our lives for indifference or that it's okay. And it happens this way. If you've got a sin or an attitude or a behavior or a secret in your life that you've been hearing that conviction and you ignore it, and you, and you begin to believe that God's actually okay with it. He's not. He's giving you time to deal with it. And I know this because, not about you, but there's people every once in a while that will show up in my office, and they've had a secret that they've been dealing with in their own life, and it finally becomes apparent, and everything falls apart, and they would do anything to go back three years earlier. In fact, there's probably some people listening to this message this, this morning that in three years, that have a secret in their life, something that they know is wrong, and they think they're getting away with it, and they don't realize that God's grace 
is giving you time to deal with it so it doesn't destroy your lives. And in three years, you're going to wish you were back here, wishing you could deal with it now. So mistake number three is we build up an immunity to the voice of God and the warnings of God. The landowner repeatedly sent collectors to the servants, reminding them that they're supposed to bring the fruit to God, and all they did is keep shutting them down. God sent prophets to Israel of impending judgment if they continued to reject his leadership in their lives, and God also withdrew his blessing in their lives to give them warning and circumstances that, that became you know, hard, and they just kept resisting, and just resisting and resisting, and God brought more circumstances. Their lives were falling apart. The nation of Israel at this point, they were under Roman rule. They were in bondage, and they didn't get it that possibly it was because of the sins in their lives of rejecting God as God, of not obeying him as best as they could, and certainly not sharing with the rest of the world. They never put the two and two together that maybe it was because of that they nullified the warnings. In fact, so much that they developed blind spots, and that's, when Je- that's why when Jesus told the parable, at first they didn't even get it was about them, and their indignation, their self-righteousness said, you know, the landowner's gonna put those wretches to death. Here's another nugget of truth. When we resist the warnings of God, we fall into a self-righteous blind spot, and we often become negative and critical and see things in other people's lives that are the exact sins or mistakes or flaws in our lives that God's been trying to deal with. So my question to you is, who are the voices of warning that God's been bringing into your life? Has your spouse been trying to speak something into your life that you just shut down the messenger by bringing up her flaws or his flaws. You try to shut that down rather than listen, rather than taking a step back and saying, is it possible that what they're saying is true? Or friends or colleagues or other people in your lives. You know, I had a little, I had a trouble preparing for this message and I realized that I got, I got no humor in it. I've got no illustrations. I've got nothing. I've just got the illustrations. Uh, and then, Jesus, then God gave me um, an illustration this morning. I got a warning. <laughs> I was, early this morning, I was driving to, to, to the, the ministry center to print off my sermon, and I, I happened to run a red light. I, I was trying to get through the yellow, and the cop was there, and he pulls over, and he comes by, and he says, what was the color of that red light you just went through? And I was hoping he wasn't going to ask me where I was going. He didn't, fortunately. I hope he's not watching this online. But wouldn't wouldn't I be foolish after I get that warning than to just drive just as fast and look to make sure there's no other cops? Wasn't the warning to help me slow down so that I don't kill somebody? So that I don't have an accident? You you see, you can have the warnings and you can respond two different ways. I can just criticize him. He shouldn't have been out there or he had a bad day or he was trying to fill his quota and I could shut all or I could listen to the warnings. But when we reject the warnings, we become immune to them. And often God has to let our lives fall apart. Circumstance in our lives, and some of our lives are broken. Some of our lives are broken. Some of our relationships are broken. Some of us are broken inside emotionally. We're striving and striving, but we're never really finding God's fulfillment. We're we're striving, but we're never really arriving. Our finances are broken. Our emotions are broken. Our lives, our dreams are broken. And we find people to blame, but we never step back and say, is there something in my life, God? Is there cinema? Is there something you've been trying to speak to me about that I've been ignoring and not hearing? In 
take another look at verse 21, uh, sorry, verse 42. Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in my eyes. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Some scholars believe, in fact, a lot of scholars believe that Jesus was actually referring to a second means of execution by stoning that they used in the nation of Israel. The most popular was where the whole nation would come together and they'd stone the person with little stones. The person would bleed internally and that's how they would die. But there was another way that they would execute people and they would build a scaffold about 12 feet high and then they would throw the condemned man down on a stone and it would break him. It would break his bones. It would break his ribs and he'd have trouble breathing. And he'd be limping around down there in incredible pain. But that was still healable. That was healable. And if they would pick him out of there, he, he could still live his life. And what Jesus is saying here, I am the stone. You're rejecting me as Lord, but I am the stone. And, and if you reject what I'm saying your lives, your lives will continue to be broken. You're falling on that. It's broken. It's not going to get better. And, and some people say, I don't believe all that stuff. We say that as if it really makes a difference. Whether we believe it or not, we've, we've, we've distorted our view of God and, and because of his mercy and because he's kind, because he doesn't punish us, we think we can actually say, I don't believe all that stuff. But if God is who he says he is, if Jesus is the stone by which all things will be measured, it doesn't matter if we reject it or not, he will be the stone by which all things will be rejected. But then the other thing that they did with the person, he'd be limping around down there broken. Then the other thing that they would do is they would take a big stone and after a period of time, they would throw down the stone, and it would crush him. And after that, there'd be no redemption. And that's what Jesus was warning the nation of Israel. They actually had about 72 hours to repent, to change, change their ways. He was trying to say, you're, you're broken. Look at this. It's broken. Don't just keep blaming Rome. Ask God, is there something that you've been speaking to us about that's broken? Have I been honoring you as God? Have I made you first place in my life? Do I really believe that my home, my car, my wealth, my abilities, my time, my heart, my relationships are actually yours as a gift and that I'm just a tenant or have I taken them on myself? Secondly, am I obeying you as best I can? Is there something in my life you've been warning me about that I've been shutting it down? And thirdly, am I sharing you with the rest of the world? God's asking us to look at those. I've got three applications to consider as I wind down. The first one is I want to speak to those of you who I guess we call non-Christians. It's a terrible term, but it just there, there's people who are Christians uh, that come to Village Church who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and then there's people who come to Village Church that haven't invited Jesus to be Savior and Lord, and, and I guess we call you non-Christians, or you're not Christians. But some of you have been hearing God for a while. You've been hearing the conviction. And we've done this Problem of God series trying to take away some of the obstacles, but you know one of the biggest obstacles of people giving their life to Jesus Christ is that nobody, including God, is gonna tell me how to live. This is embarrassing to admit, but I remember a time in my life that I knew there was a God, and I knew I was going to hell, and that was okay with me because nobody, including God, is gonna tell me how to live. And I fought God, but finally I surrendered because my life got so broken, and it was the best fight I ever lost. I had a friend, I have a friend, I'll call him Bob, it's not his real name. His real name is Jim. <laughs> he became one of our statistics, not at Village Church, but another church, and, and he, 
he heard a message that you can invite Jesus to be Savior, but not, Lord, you just need to ask Jesus to forgive you, and that's all you need for eternal life. And so he put up his hand, and he became a Christian. And then as he continued to go to church, the church began to tell him all the things. He said it was a free gift, but now these are all the things you have to change in your life. And he said to me over coffee, he says, Ken, you Christians lie. He says, you tell us that salvation is a free gift and all I got to do is believe and then you start telling me all the things I got to do. So let me not lie to you. There is an exchange and, and salvation is a free gift. It's not a work salvation. There's nothing you can do to become right with God except, except the gift that he's given you. But it is an exchange. It is of, Lord, I give you my life and I make, there, there is no package where you can accept Jesus as Savior but not as Lord. He wants to be leader of your life and again, he's not looking for perfection. But he's looking for intent. God, I give you the reins of my life. I'm going to honor you as God. There'll be an opportunity right at the end of my message. We're going to pray. And you, can, you, may, may, you might be ready. You've heard God's conviction. Don't, don't, don't avoid it. Don't silence it. It's God's love, and he doesn't want that stone to one day be thrown upon you. The second group of people I want to talk to are Christians who claim to follow Jesus but have distorted their view of God to justify their disobedience, who have mistaken the grace of God for his indifference or that he's okay, and third, who have rejected the warnings. Just pause for a minute and ask God to bring to your mind that which he's been warning you of. What's he been saying to you? What are the aspects of our, your life, my life, that are out of whack, that he's been pleading with you. He's been allowing your life to fall apart, your relationships, your emotions, your heart, and that you've been avoiding and stopping here. God, would you just bring those back to our mind and make them loud right now? Because you love us. And you want us to change. And make you God again in our lives. And as God's bringing something to your mind, what are you going to do about that? Would you tell him right now? Remember God's love language is obedience. It's not that you have to, it's that he wants you to so he can bless your life, begin putting it back together. The third application, I don't want to miss this. Remember the third thing that God asked Israel to do? What was that again? Oh yeah, share God with the rest of the world. You know one of the big dangers, and I want to speak to Village Church as a whole, and maybe the church in Canada, you know what the biggest, one of the biggest dangers for a church like this is? That we could forget to have a friend who doesn't know Jesus Christ. And the longer we go on as a church, the greater percentage of Christians we could have visiting here, and the smaller percent of non-Christians visiting here. I, I'm hoping that there's 20% of the people listening to this right now that don't know Jesus personally. I mean, I'm hoping you would know Jesus personally, but so here's the challenge. Who is the one person in your life that you're intentionally building a friendship with that doesn't know Jesus, that you are going to be praying for, asking God for an opportunity to share your relationship with Jesus Christ with them? Now, I know what's happening right now. Well, God doesn't really expect us to do that. We attend Village Church, and they baptize a lot of people. And a lot of us attend here because we love seeing new people come to Christ. But who's the person in your life? 
because it is one of the expectations. It's an expectation in my life, and it's so easy to become so busy. It's so easy to, be, to, to justify this and say that God doesn't really expect it. Yes, he does. And he expects me to carve out time in a very busy schedule. He expects me to carve out time to build a relationship with someone and actually be praying. Me, me personally, not just the church. Asking for an opportunity to share with them what Jesus has done in my life so that they don't get crushed by the stone. Who is the person and would you be willing to build a relationship. That might mean one night not going to community group. I mean, we want you to go to community group. It might mean you're in a whole community group. It takes a night off. Just imagine this. Community group. You've been together for three years. Let's all take a week off and let's everybody go out for dinner with someone that's not a Christian and just talk. You know what happens when that happens? We start to love people who don't know Christ. We start to care about them. We see them as people, not projects. And we want to share God with them. And that's what God wants from us. I want to just go back to the first group of people I talked about, someone who might not know Jesus. There's a little place where the analogy of the story breaks down, and that's where the, the, the landowner sent his son, thinking that maybe they'll respect my son. But when in reality, when God sent his son Jesus for us, he knew Jesus would be rejected by most of the people, and yet he still did it. Why did he do it? Because of you. God sent his son so that whoever believes in him could have eternal life, that Jesus would forgive our sins, take first place in our life, and I'm going to give you an opportunity, if that's you, to invite him to be the Savior and Lord of your life. Jesus, I don't understand all of it, but I understand enough. There's some brokenness in my life, and I'm getting that part of it, maybe all of it, is because I've not invited you to be leader and Savior in my life. Lord, I've blown it. I've been listening to condemnation. I've been listening to Satan's voice in my life that I'm not good enough, that I'll never be good enough. But I'm done with that, Lord. I ask you to forgive me. I realize I'm not good enough, but you came to die for my flaws so that I could have right relationship with you and I could have right relationship with others. So I ask you to become leader and savior in my life today. Show me how to honor you as God. To understand that all you've given me is a gift from you and that I'm a tenant. Show me how to obey you. Show me how you want me to live, teach me. And then help me share what you're doing in my life with others. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, amen. Listen to that nugget of truth that God has spoken to your life. Ask him how he wants you to apply it. And have an amazing week. God bless.